Chris Webster here, co-founder of the APN. I just wanted to thank you for supporting archaeological education and outreach. Please share this post across your socials so more can learn about our shared past. On to the episode. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. The Dirt Podcast is brought to you with support from the Archaeology Division of the American Anthropological Association. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And this week, we're talking about (laughs) some of the ancient cultures of North America and some of the myths that arose when the remnants of those civilizations were discovered by European colonists. We're talking about mounds and the mound builder myth. Yeah. Um, Anna, Mm. how about we start off by talking about who these mound building people were and when and where they lived. And also maybe like a what and a why are mounds uh, while you're at it. Yeah. Give yeah. Me the, well, we're, ju- we're journalists. Mounds. So <laughs> got to get all the W's. Okay. Uh, the, my favorite W. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Why? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, well, we will get to all of those noises. I will talk about some archaeology, and then you, Amber, can lead us gently into Weirdsville with the mound builder myths. Ah, like Charon across the sticks. Or mm. Virgil. Call back from last week. I will be Virgil. I will be your psychopomp into the depths of weird hell. Like he was for Dante Alighieri? Yeah. Virgil no, was I the was psychopomp just... in the Inferno? Yeah, in the, I know. Okay. I know that. But also I was just imagining I've the t-shirt books. that I'm now going to make oh my God. that says Psychopomp. <laughs> it's a good shirt. Sorry. I, oh, it's, it's in my head. It's good. Okay. <laughs> the mounds that we're talking about are ceremonial centers built by American Indians from about 2200 to 1600 years ago. And they existed in what is now Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Wisconsin, Minnesota, and Michigan, as well as elsewhere. <laughs> the well, you know, a brief sampling of some uh, of the states that Places that aren't those. <laughs> yeah. The people who built these centers had previously lived more simply as hunters and fishermen, fisher people, and some had begun to domesticate native plants, such as goosefoot, which is a quinopod for our plant people, which is a grassy plant with seeds that I'm pretty sure are related to quinoa somehow. Um, in any case, Wait, the why, cultivation Why of- do you think that? Is because it like I a learned theory? It. Oh, okay. No, no, no. No, I learned it at some point and I think I'm right. But I didn't look it up to remember exactly what it's related to. I think it's quinoa. Okay. Not as relevant. So we're going to keep going. But when you, you know, when you're cultivating your own food, it's a more reliable food supply and you can stay for longer in one place. So some communities had begun to do this and to make pottery and bury their dead in or under conical mounds made of earth. Then... A new religion swept through the region, attracting followers who built ceremonial centers along rivers and lakes. They lived in small settlements of close relatives led by senior family members. The settlements of these believers were oriented to mounds and earthworks, and these were constructed several miles apart along waterways. The believers made pilgrimages to the center nearest them, bringing offerings to spirit beings who were sources of power, and 
uh, to also accompany burials of some of their deceased relatives. Now, we should note that this mound building took place across a long time span, and there are mounds in lots of different places in North America that were built by different groups. So this isn't one big monolithic culture. So we'll touch on a few of the major sites, but we aren't going to be able to do a site-by-site deep dive in the time that we have here. So the first one that I'm going to touch on is, and these are largely in chronological order, earliest to latest. The first one I'm going to touch on, am I gonna? <laughs> the first one I'm going to touch on, it's a me, Mario, ah, is Watson. Okay, you're back. <laughs> it's a me, Dante Alighieri. <laughs> a Virgil left me here. <laughs> Please help me. Okay, Watson Brick which is an archaeological site in present-day Watson Brake. I know, it's Are called Are you Watson sure Break. he's not, like, a cop that plays by his own rules? <laughs> <laughs> and he's got, like, an older partner who's like, I'm too old for this, it's Watson Brake. Yeah, and he's and got, Camaro. like, an estranged wife. Yeah. <laughs> and like, but every- she still loves him. Yeah, he's just yeah. married to the job. Yeah, and his mustache. Okay. Slamming the brakes. Yep, there it is. Sundays on TNT. <laughs> There's our buddy cop drama. Okay, so Watson Brake, besides being a cop, is an archaeological site in present-day Wachita Parish, Louisiana, from the Archaic period. So that's dated to about 5,400 years ago, around 3,500 BCE. It's considered the oldest earthwork mound complex in North America. It's older than the Egyptian pyramids or Stonehenge in England. Its discovery and dating in a paper published in 1997 changed the ideas of American archaeologists about ancient cultures in the Southeast and their ability to manage large, complex projects over centuries. The archaeologists revised their date of the oldest earthwork construction by nearly 2,000 years and recognized that it was developed over centuries by a hunter-gatherer society rather than by what was known to be more common of other later mound sites, a more sedentary society dependent on maize cultivation and with a hierarchical centralized polity. So Watson Break is located near Watson Bayou in the floodplain of the Wachita or possibly Wachita River near present-day Monroe in northern Louisiana in the United States. Watson Break consists of an oval formation of 11 earthwork mounds from 3 to 25 feet in height, so that's 7.6 meters, connected by ridges to form an oval nearly 900 feet or 270 meters across. Evidence from middens, so trash heaps basically, indicate that Watson Brake may have been used as a base by mobile hunter-gatherers from summer through fall. The researchers that published on this site suggest that the building episodes at Watson Brake coincide with periods of unpredictable rainfall caused by El Nino weather events. So this may, the, the mound building itself might represent a communal response to new stresses of droughts and flooding that created a suddenly more unpredictable food base. So it's thought that these were sort of somehow religious or ceremonial acts, the building of these mounds. And so in, in response to periods of more stress, they may have been sort of acting out ritually in order to try and um, bring in a better harvest or bring so, in better weather conditions. So the objective was less to have a mound at the end of it and more the act of the, the mound act. building. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the 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 outcome was also proud of the point as well like it was dedicated to whichever deities or or, or spirits they were um worshiping so yeah it was the the building as a ritual but also the end result as like a dedication yeah yeah Um, but i'm just trying to encourage our listeners to think about this in terms of less like means to an end mm -hmm, and sometimes the the means is 
the is the end process as well. And so this is something that because I'm thinking about like what I read in school about this. So this okay. <laughs> yeah. No. It's yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So. <laughs> The Min remains show that this population relied on fish, shellfish, and riverine animals supplemented by local annuals, as in plants. Goosefoot, there it is again, knotweed, which is the bane of my mother's gardening existence, and possibly marsh elder. Over time, the people started to consume more terrestrial animals such as deer, turkey, raccoon, possum, squirrel, and rabbits, likely related to changing habitat and waterway conditions. And then the site appears to have been abandoned around 2800 BCE. The artifacts of Watson Brake show local materials and production, so there wasn't necessarily a long-distance network of procurement and trade. And the article published on this places the projectile points at the middle to late archaic time period and says that they were produced casually, which I enjoy, but it just means that there wasn't... Nice, nice projectile, bra. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool, cool, cool. (laughs) It's just that they weren't producing them systematically at a large scale, but it was just like, if you need one, you make one. The locals also heated local gravel for cooking stones to steam some of their food. They were healthy eaters. They created and fired earthenware items in a variety of shapes, but of those shapes, researchers have not yet determined their function or functions. So that's Watson Brake. That's the earliest one that we're going to touch on. The second one is maybe one that people have heard of, uh, Cahokia. So Cahokia was the largest and most influential urban settlement of the Mississippian culture, which developed advanced societies across much of what is now the central and southeastern United States, beginning more than a thousand years before European contact. Cahokia is, as it is now defined, was settled around 600 CE during the late woodland period. And so mound building at this location began with the emergent Mississippian cultural period, which I should note cultural here means that it's associated with certain types of artifacts. So like when these types of artifacts show up, that's when we're saying this time happens um, around the ninth century CE. The inhabitants left no written records beyond symbols on pottery, shell, copper, wood, and stone, but the elaborately planned community, woodhenge, mounds, and burials reveal a complex and sophisticated society. And the city's original name is unknown. Cahokia is a later name. Yeah, so woodhenge, there is a a structure. It's not a henge. It's not like Stonehenge. It's not constructed in the same way, but it's a wooden structure that appears to have had some ritual purpose. But people say that, and... Maybe it's because they don't know what it is. So I don't know. Um, so the mounds were later named after the Cahokia tribe, a historic Illinois people living in the area when the first French explorers arrived in the 17th century CE. As this was centuries after Cahokia was abandoned by its original inhabitants, the Cahokia tribe was not necessarily descended from these earlier Mississippian era people. Most likely, in fact, multiple indigenous groups settled in the Cahokia Mounds area during the time that the city was occupied and active. Historial, historial, yes, historian, historian, Dan- historian, <laughs> historian, Danian, yes. <laughs> oh, my mouth! It's not doing what I want. Historian Daniel Richter notes that the apex of the city occurred during the medieval warming period. This period appears to have fostered an agricultural revolution in Upper North America as the threefold crops of maize, beans, and gourds, so squash and beans, and corn, were developed and adapted or bred to the temperate climates of the North from their origins in Mesoamerica. 
And so we will include pictures of some of the artifacts from Cahokia. They are very cool. There are some really awesome ceramic figures and they had copper working. So they, they were smelting and working copper and there are some very nifty copper artifacts. So we'll be sure to include that on social media. But what I wanted to tell you about, Amber, Me? because I think you will like it, is the burials at Mound 72. During uh-huh. excavation of Mound 72, a ridgetop burial mound south of the main urban precinct, archaeologists found the remains of a man in his 40s who is probably an important Cahokian ruler. The man was buried on a bed of more than 20,000 marine shell disc beads arranged in the shape of a falcon with the bird's head appearing beneath and beside the man's and its wings and tail beneath his arms and legs. The falcon warrior, or birdman, is a common motif Birdman, in Mississippi. Birdman is actually from New Orleans. Do you mean the the, the Alcatraz, rapper? The bird? <laughs> oh, there's like five different birdmen that we could talk about. There's the Birdman of Alcatraz. Oh, Birdman, see, I only thought rapper. of the NRE2 film and the rapper. <laughs> there's also a cartoon, like a really bad, maybe like 70s or 80s cartoon. And all I remember, because this is like a snippet from my childhood as I remember watching it and he goes, bird man. <laughs> no, you're thinking of the rapper. Oh, that's huh. his <laughs> man. That's when his... did he sampled it? No, but let's, <laughs> let me get back to this cool burial. Go, go on. <laughs> it's actually Birdman. He's Jewish. This burial clearly, <laughs> <laughs> this burial clearly had powerful iconographic significance. In addition, a cache of sophisticated, finely worked arrowheads in a variety of different styles and materials was found near the grave of this important man. Separated into four types, each from a different geographical region, the arrowheads demonstrated Cahokia's extensive trade links in North America, so possibly in contrast to Watson Brake. I almost said Walter Brake. Because <laughs> I was thinking, you know, he's a cop, Walter. <sighs> Archaeologists recovered more than 250 other skeletons from Mound 72. Scholars believe almost 62% of these were sacrificial victims based on signs of ritual execution, method of burial, and other factors. So the skeletons include four young males missing their hands and their skulls, a mass grave of more than 50 women around 21 years old with the bodies arranged in two layers separated by matting and a mass burial containing 40 men and women who appear to have been violently killed. And some of these actually may have been buried alive. Um, here's a quote from the, the publication of this I burial mean, trigger warning people being buried alive. Yes. Go on. CW <laughs> quote. From the vertical position of some of the fingers, which appear to have been digging in the sand, it is apparent that not all of the victims were dead when they were interred, that some had been trying to pull themselves out of the mass of bodies, end quote. Yeah, it's pretty horrifying. I apologize for not doing a, a content warning sooner. We should have saved this for Spooktober, but... Oh my God, I'm so excited for Spooktober. It's coming, folks. But I don't really want stuff like this because this, I don't like... No, it's it's really scary. Yeah, it's it's like, very scary. Lived experience. Yeah. So, no, totally. But, but also, um, I told you I wanted Spooktober in July, and I got it. So, mm, great. Thanks. Everyone loses. Trick or treat. Go on. The relationship of these burials to the central burial, meaning the, the Birdman, was, is unclear. They were unlikely to have all been deposited at the same time. Wood in several parts of the mound has been radiocarbon dated, though, to between 950 and 1000 CE. 
excavations have indicated that Mound 72 was not constructed as a single mound, which fits in with this idea that they, these people weren't buried at all at the same time, but rather as a series of smaller mounds. And then these mounds were reshaped and covered over at some point to give Mound 72 its final ridge top shape. So it was a row of little hillocks and then those were covered over. And so once it sort of smoothed out, it was just a ridge. Yeah, I remember um, in grad school reading about um, reading some of Tim Paukatat's work about mm. Cahokia and like looking mm-hmm. at um, sort of theories around labor and um, mm-hmm. sort of co-opting like local populations into like conscripting local populations into to labor. And into- I'll see if I can dig that up because it was a really, really interesting um, article in in creating earthworks, people yeah, were constructed. Yeah, like in mm. it, look how it was. Um, it's pretty Marxist, so I'm just I'm trying to think of it. So it's looking at like exploitation of labor and the role of labor. Yeah. Um, okay, so I'll see uh, if yeah, I can, be, I can dig that up in that. Um, and I'll share it with folks. Cool, dig it up and put it in a mound. Okay, of knowledge. Hmm. The last one we are going to talk about is back in Louisiana, at least modern Louisiana. Ah, and that where Birdman is from. Birdman, yes. Um, and it is another one that may ring a bell to some people, and that is Poverty Point. Been there. So, still there. Poverty Point was not constructed all at once. <laughs> the final form. <laughs> The final form appears to have been the product of successive generations over a considerable period of time, which that's a theme for these. They're not just like massive building events. It's something that happens over and over and over and ends up looking the way it does just because. The exact sequence and time frame of earthwork construction is not precisely known. Radiocarbon dating of Poverty Point has produced a wide variety of results, but a recent synthesis... But recent syntheses suggest earthwork construction began as early as 1800 BCE and continued until as late as 1200 BCE. So 600 years. Archaeological excavations determined that prior to the construction of the earthworks, prehistoric workers leveled the land around the site and filled in gullies and other low places to create the flat central plaza and surfaces on which to build the mounds and ridges. Forethought. The main building material was luss, a type of silt loam soil, which is easy to dig, but erodes when exposed to water. And so for this reason, clay may have been used on top of the luss to protect the surfaces from erosion. So it's like layers were capped off with layers of clay. It's luss? Luss. How have you been saying it, Lois? Well, I've mostly not been saying it, but when forced, Lois. I think it's luss. It probably is luss. You've you've been around more dirts than I have mm. and discussed them. Well, my lust is your gain. Mm. Okay. This is really cool. And I remember learning about it in my geoarchaeology class. Um, the, one, the one that I was in? No. Okay. In grad school. <laughs> okay. I, re- I remember a thing that you weren't there. <laughs> no, no, no. No, no, no. I learned about this in grad school and it's really cool. So the earthworks were constructed by dumping basket loads of dirt in piles and then filling in the gaps between them. So this is what I learned is if you take a section of the mound, what you can see is the imprint of the basket, like Whoa. the little hump, the little like hump of of sediment that just went dunk. And That's then, so cool. Yeah. You can actually see the individual basket loads that people carried from and they have... um they have located, I think, the source of where those basket loads of dirt came from. 
And so they know that people scooped up that dirt into baskets, then traveled back to the mounds and went dunk, and then went back and did it again and again and again and again. Um, and so these baskets, depending on the size of the bearer, could hold between 30 and 50 pounds, which is 13 Whoa. and a half to 22 and a half kilograms of dirt, suggesting that men, women, and children could all have participated in the construction. So it's different size little basket loads. So there's like a mommy one and a daddy one and a baby one. The number of individuals involved in the construction of Poverty Point is unknown, although archaeologist John L. Gibson provides multiple scenarios for how long it would have taken to build the earthwork, depending on the number and intensity of individual efforts. So yeah, you can model this kind of thing. You can say like, okay, if it's this many basket loads of dirt, and it takes this many people this long. So there's there's lots of possibilities, though. For example, he estimated that the earthwork could have been produced in a century by three generations if 100 individuals spent six or seven days a month on the construction project. And then Gibson also suggests that workers lived on site during construction. Sounds like a math problem. I know. If 45 people each take six baskets an hour. And they are traveling at three miles an hour and somebody is removing baskets at two miles per hour then what time will that train get there yeah (laughs) changes in temperature precipitation and increased flooding may have caused an ecological imbalance that led to the abandonment of poverty point archaeologists use this change as a time boundary between the archaic and later woodland periods the vast majority of artifacts recovered at Poverty Point are small baked shapes made of lusts found in a wide variety of forms and referred to as Poverty Point objects or PPOs. Except for unique specialized forms, archaeologists generally conclude the fired earth objects were used in cooking based on the artifact's recovery context and then supported by experimental archaeology. When placed in earth ovens, the objects were shown to hold heat and aid in cooking food. The inhabitants of Poverty Point produced small amounts of pottery, creating a variety of different types, such as fiber-tempered, grog-tempered, and untempered. Okay, so... There's um, a lot of words coming up in this next sentence and a half that, like, I can't handle. So starting with (laughs) grog-tempered. Okay, well, I'll go back to temper in general, and that is stuff that you add to pottery to make it stronger. Right, so you have your clay, and in the case of fiber tempered, you can mix in grass or even like linen threads or something like that, and it'll help give the give the clay some um, ten, not tensile strength. Um, it'll help the clay hold together better. Like yeah. it'll it'll make it stronger. So structural you, support. If you think about bricks, often do, um, and you think about how bricks have little holes in them. Mm-hmm. So the so the the holes in fired materials are where temper has burnt out so if it's like right so there used to be stuff in those holes yeah but it was Mm -hmm. heated to such a degree that that burnt out Mm -hmm. yeah and so grog temper grog is like crushed up gravel okay so it's coarse coarse dirt alcohol not rum no it's not sailor's rum and then untempered is untempered i mean Um, i guess my my pie crust is grog tempered because i put (laughs) in it oh Oh, you really? You make yeah. It, huh, yeah. You, that's a fun trick. Because you keep it in the freezer. Yeah, and yeah. So you can I heard get it colder it, then, than cold and then it burns out. But it doesn't. And so it keeps it extra flaky. Oh. Listeners, Vodka. did you hear that? Yep. Yeah. Okay. So, and then, so these multiple types of pottery were also decorated in a couple of different styles. But more commonly. Oh, no, you're not going to say old Floyd Chifunct 
Yeah, there's there is a there are two design styles that are most common. I was hoping to avoid this. No, but the that. the wheeler the wheeler style and the old Floyd Jefuncte style. What's his deal? He's old and it dresses defunct. like you. <laughs> that would, listeners, she's entirely right. I'm wearing overalls, so <laughs> call me old Floyd. Jefuncte. Okay. <laughs> More commonly, however, these people at Poverty Point imported stone vessels made of steatite, which is soapstone, from the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains. Thank you for saying it right. You're welcome. Most of the Poverty Point tools appear to have been made on site, since there's evidence of debris from their manufacturing process found across the ridges. An analysis of artifacts recovered from the ridges demonstrate that individual sectors of the earthwork complex were used for specialized activities. For example, in the north, you get the spot for manufacturing tools, and in the south, you get the location where projectile points were used as tools. And then beads and pendants and other lapidary items, Mm. stone-made items, were recovered primarily in the west sector. However, clay figurines are evenly distributed throughout the ridge system, so it's unclear whether they were made on site, imported, or some combination of those two things. So those are three key mound sites, and throughout it shows not only this continuity of building activity, you know, over generations at least, but also um, a lot of complexity, no matter when the time frame is. It's a lot of um, complexity that we don't really fully understand yet. And unfortunately, that lack of understanding has led to some pretty wild interpretations of these sites. So we are going to talk about the myth of the mound builders and what a bunch of hooey that is. But first, a quick break. Need to gain essential business skills to level up in your career? Then UCR University Extension's Professional Certificate in Heritage Business Management is the program for you. Join the first University of California online business program designed by and for cultural heritage professionals. Enroll early and save. Visit extension.ucr.edu slash APN today. All right, so we're back. And I'm going to talk about the myth of the mound builders, which isn't the subtitle of one of the new Marvel movies announced at San Diego Comic-Con. But Lady Thor, Lady Thor, Natalie Portman as um, Thor. Mahersha Ali Blade. Mahersha Ali Blade. Also that. Also. Um, also. No, this is 007. why I brought it up. No, shut up. This is this is why I brought it up. In one of these here movies for the Marvel whatever... The villain is Gilgamesh. Can that we go Gilgamesh. See that can, we, can we go? Can we go see it? So I, the whole time you were talking about like baskets and like building, uh, building temples, yeah. I just thought of like Gilgamesh building the walls of Uruk, like with his, with his, with basket, his basket on his head. Um, yeah. So Gilgamesh is the villain. But why Gilgamesh the villain? Because he's. F- because he's foreign and he can be evil and no one, not enough people have really heard of Gilgamesh. Ah, uh, well, we got to change so that. So it's a funny name that they but can But it's like make. straight up Gilgamesh, apparently, according to internet people. Also, no, I get it. Cats? I mean, I don't. No. Did you see that? Absolutely not. 
the did you first watch the trailer? 20 seconds of no oh i mean God. yeah no. i started do you gotta watch the rest of the trailer no it is no but but what it does is it i always oh god jennifer hudson is so talented no after well, this i'll i'll after turn this, the trailer on and and no listen after, I'll after just, this after this i'm gonna watch you watch it great do you want that on video yep all right remember that time that i told you about that giant stone dude that wasn't real the Cardiff giant i remember it well yeah that's yeah the Cardiff giant and remember how do you remember (laughs) (laughs) what i remember is that i use that as an entree to uh the conversation around the myth of the mound builders yeah which was just sort of the myth of people being in north america who weren't the um Indigenous, indigenous Americans who were the subject of a genocide at the time. Yeah. So this is and we've back. finally gotten back around. <laughs> Call back to talking more about it. <laughs> yeah. So through the mid nineteenth century, European Americans, Americans of European descent, or white people. Yep, white people did not recognize that ancestors of the Native Americans had built the prehistoric mounds in the eastern United States. Um, they believed that the massive earthworks and large ceremony complexes were built by a different people, a more white people. Yeah. White people. (laughs) Um, a New York times article from 1897 described a mound in Wisconsin in which a giant human skeleton measuring over nine feet in length was found Mm -hmm. from 1886. Another New York times article described the water receding from a mound in Cartersville, Georgia, which uncovered acres of skulls and bones, some of which were said to be gigantic two thigh bones were measured with the height of the owners estimated at 14 feet uh president lincoln the owners the owners of the thighs yeah the thigh owners just like the, the thigh the havers thigh owners. um president lincoln you know abraham lincoln made reference to the giants whose bones fill the mounds of america the otherwise awesome abraham lincoln but it's just like oh he was misinformed yeah, yeah. Oh. um so this is from him during a speech. Do you want me to do it in the Daniel Day Lewis? <laughs> like I want weird, you to put on a chin strap beard. Weird high and, voice. <laughs> no, go ahead. But still there is more. It calls up the indefinite past. When Columbus first sought this continent, when Christ suffered on the cross, when Moses led Israel through the Red Sea, nay, even when Adam first came to the hand from the hand of his maker, then as now, Niagara was roaring here. The eyes of that species of extinct giants whose bones fill the mounds of America have gazed on Niagara as ours do now. Contemporary with the whole race of men and older than the first man, Niagara is strong and fresh today as 10,000 years ago. The mammoth and mastodon now so long dead that fragments of their monstrous bones alone testify that they ever lived have gazed on Niagara in that long Long time, never still for a single moment, never tried, never froze, never slept, never rested. Yeah. Also, didn't it freeze like last year? Yep. Okay. Okay. Um, The antiquarian author, William Pigeon, created fraudulent (laughs) surveys of mound groups that did not exist, possibly tainting this opinion, which was replaced by others. Mm. Um, oh, this is from William Pigeon's 1858 work, Traditions of Dee Kuda and Antiquarian Researches. 
Mm-hmm. Cool, cool, cool. A classic. Yep. Um, a major factor in increasing public knowledge of the origins of the mounds was the 1894 report by Cyrus Thomas of the Bureau of American Ethnology. Bay. No. He concluded that the prehistoric earthworks of the United Eastern United States were the work of early cultures of Native Americans. All right, Cyrus. A small number of people had earlier made similar conclusions. Thomas Jefferson, for example, excavated a mound and from the artifacts and burial practices noted similarities between mound builder funeral practices and those of Native Americans in his time. In addition, Theodore Lewis in 1886 had refuted Pigeon's fraudulent claims of pre-Native American mound builders. Mm-hmm. And yeah. And so here we go. Here we go. Friend of the show. Yeah. Acquaintance of your the show. Friend, your <laughs> professor crush and mine. Big fan. Big fan of my boy Ken. So this is from Kenneth Vader in The Myth of the Mound Builders. Um, has, mm-hmm. has outlined some of the writers and scholars that have proposed um, some alternative origins for the Mound Builders. Yeah. So some of this is pulled from, from Ken Fader's work and some of it is from other places. But he's written a lot about this stuff. Yeah. We'll get to that. Yeah. So great. Yeah. He's so great. So some people thought it was Vikings. <sighs> uh, God. Yeah. It's um, never Vikings uh, in North America. Which starting in 1787, Benjamin Smith Barton proposed the theory that the mound builders were Vikings who came to North America and eventually disappeared. In a cloud of mead. People not from America. So they thought nope. that maybe Greeks, Africans, Chinese, or sundry Europeans built the mounds. Um, and including some people on the internet regarding some of the, the work that one of our, <laughs> one of our, our, our colleagues and friend of the show charity has done, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. doing some like really amazing public outreach. And science communication about who, in fact, did not create things that indigenous Americans created. Um, and then also some, some people, some people like my Lyft driver from a few months ago that told me about <laughs> how it's actually Moroccans who did it. <sighs> and then some people thought it was the 10 lost tribes of Israel that built the mounds. And that's something they that got so lost. Well, yeah. So the idea that, so it's like nine and a half tribes of Israel. Cause like yeah. half of mm-hmm. them went to Ethiopia. Was that where they went? Yeah. Well, supposedly they just yeah. hung back. Um, mm-hmm. And then, yeah, the rest of them. Um, and I have seen maps illustrating the route that was taken. Were there land bridges or were these seafaring so- they're on boats. Is Israelites. Is okay. Cool. The Hebrews. Nope. They had a boat mitzvah. There it is. Yep. There we go. Okay. Now that boat we've gotten mitzvah. that out of the way. Um, yeah. So some people thought that it was them. It's not. It's not it's, a thing. That's not, not a thing. It's not. It's not. And so this is, uh, this theory was most famously Memorably. incorporated <laughs> um, into the Book of Mormon. Not the problematic Broadway show. Not that one. The actual book. book written by Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith, yeah. So, during the 19th century, a common belief was that the Jews, particularly the Ten Lost Tribes, were the ancestors of the Native Americans and the Mound Builders. The Book of Mormon 
published first in 1830, provides a related belief as its narrative describes two major immigrations to the Americas from Mesopotamia. Um, the Jaredites, who came uh, between... <laughs> <laughs> lacrosse players yeah they yeah basically yeah i was like they're either snowboarders or lax bros <laughs> um the jaredites came in um between 3000 and 2000 bce and an israelite group in 590 bce uh termed the nephites lamanites and mulekites that was after they left babylon sure I don't know. Um, while the Nephites, Lamanites, and Mulekites were all of Jewish origin coming from Israel around 590 BCE, the Jaredites brah, were a non-Abrahamic people separate in all aspects, except in a belief in Jehovah from the Nephites. All right. um, so the Book of Mormon depicts these settlers building magnificent, magnificent cities, <laughs> which I was still hung up on like the Latin from our last episode. Magnificent. Uh, magnificent cities, which were destroyed by warfare around 385 CE. So remember when I, I did a paper on this in undergrad. So they, they took their boat, they got on their boats and pretty sure they went down around the Cape and then across the Atlantic. And they ended up in around somewhere around the Yucatan Peninsula. So they first arrived and then they created the Mayan. Boy, they were busy little people, huh? They were Mayan. The, yeah. So like they did the, the Maya, the Aztec, and then the Inca. So they, it was all them. That was all them. Uh-huh. And you can tell that um, they were probably from somewhere in the greater Holy land because that's where everybody was from. Um, and you could tell that they had a Semitic cast to their features. And so this. Oh, book, the noses. Right. Mm-hmm. You were. Yeah. Tell, when we talked so, about that, you, you told me about the noses. Yeah. Because it was depressing. Yeah. Because there is a look. And, and so the author um, does like an art historical analysis of the I think they're like glyphs and then. Um, murals. Some of the murals. Yeah. yeah. And so it's like they, they got a Jewish nose. These Mayans are obviously totes Jewish. Um, and their pyramids are flat on top. So they're circumcised. <laughs> I'll go. I'll go. You, you, you finish up. I'll go. Okay. And so so they they arrived. They arrived there in Mesoamerica. They established like like these dope dope empires they moved up into north america they spread out they built some like earthworks they did really great things and then because at the end of the day they still aren't as capable as white people they fell prey to their own destruction and they like they fell apart they fell apart and so the dregs of this great civilization of Jews was now just the Native Americans who were left around getting genocided at the time <sighs> that Joseph Smith wrote this book. So mm-hmm. there's a lot going on there. There's a lot yep. going on in that in that theory. Um, mm. And it wasn't so this isn't like us like dunking on the foundational texts of the LDS faith. This is just us talking about. Joseph Smith picking up on some ideas that were floating around. Um, and some Mormon scholars have considered the Book of Mormon a narrative, a description 
of mound building cultures. Other Mormon apologists argue for a Mesoamerican or South American setting. So so theories about a Mesoamerican setting for the Book of Mormon did not develop until after the Latter-day Saints were influenced by publicized findings about the Central American stone ruins. Um, And this happened after the Book of Mormon was published. So yeah, it's sort of revisionism therein. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we've got black civilizations. Um, We've got my, uh, my Lyft driver. Um, Mm -hmm. During the 20th century, certain sects affiliated with the black nationalist Moorish science philosophy uh, theorized an association with the mound builders. They argue that the mound builders were an ancient black, ancient advanced black civilization that developed the legendary continents of, uh, of Atlantis and Mu, um, as well as ancient Egypt and Mesoamerica. Again, so busy. Where do they find the time? Yeah, it's it's really interesting. It's a lot. And again, yeah. like that, the like nationalist, like Moorish science, like mm-hmm. ideology is very interesting. There's a, there's an intersection of a lot of things at play there that make it sort of tough to like shut down from the back of your lift. <laughs> yeah. Well, also you want to get where you're going, right? Yeah. So. Next up, we are, uh, we are also doing our next Dirt After Dark installment on Atlantis. So maybe we can talk more about that then. So some people think just straight up God did it. Um, so the Reverend Landon West claimed that the certain serpent mound in Ohio was built by Big G um, mm. or by a man inspired by him. No, it says by man, by people. Not a man, not just one really ambitious dude. Well, I know, but like what's making me giggle is like it was either built by God or by somebody. People were meant it to be. (laughs) Yeah. Like, okay. Well, that's either like the biggest thing ever or just like how everything else is built. Uh, But he believed that God built the mound and placed it as a symbol of the story of the Garden of Eden. It's the only thing a snake can mean. Oh, mythical cultures. I read it as mythical creatures. And I'm like, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> um, a griffin built it. <laughs> some, so some people have attributed the mounds to straight up mythical cultures. I don't want that to seem like some of the cultures that we mentioned before now aren't mythical. But like, no. yeah, <laughs> but these are like it. full on mythical. So they are not real. Lafcadio Hearn suggested that the mounds were built by people from the lost continent of Atlantis. And we will talk about Atlantis on the next Dirt After Dark. Yes. The effects of these alternative explanations have not been great. (laughs) Not been great. Uh, The mound builder explanations were often honest implicitly racist misinterpretations of real data from valid services sources. Yeah. So they took real data, but then like it was colored by their own either bonkers ideas or their own worldview. Also, it was like, you know, the 1700s. So, yeah. So both scholars and laypersons accepted some of these explanations. Um, reference to an alleged race appears in the poem, the prairies, um, which was, by William Colin Bryant in 1832 during that period of American literature where everybody had three names. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mentioned, I've, I've alluded to this before. Alluded might be 
an understatement. But um, a lot of these are the underpinnings of a lot of these are the belief that American Indians uh, and First Nations in North America were too unsophisticated to have constructed such complex earthworks and artifacts. The associated stone, metal, and clay artifacts were thought to be too complex for indigenous Americans to have made. And the American South, American Southeast and Midwest, where a lot of these things were found, um, numerous Indian cultures were sedentary and used agriculture. Uh, numerous towns had been built surrounding stockades for defense. Capable of this type of construction, their ancestors and they could have built mounds, but people who believed that the Indians did not build the earthworks did not analyze it in this manner. They thought the Native American nomadic cultures would not organize to build such monuments for failure to devote the time and effort to construct such time-consuming projects, which is something that Kenneth Fader has talked about. Um, and because... So when you think about it, thinking that somebody is capable of doing something is a slippery slope into thinking that somebody is a human being. Yep. And and at this point in American history, in these disciplines that were, or were growing, that was not what they wanted to put out there. No, um, American Indians were viewed as, as essentially subhuman. Yeah, there, there's a reason why we have colleagues that work at natural history museums uh, even though they study humans and yeah, there's a reason why there are remains there and there's a reason why isn't it and also isn't the bureau of indian affairs still part of the department of the interior i believe so so it's I like don't know for sure mountains yeah. and parks and human beings and you know, so these all are all of those inanimate things. And so, yeah, these are things that uh, we still see really obvious and egregious examples of this around and us so, in the discipline today. And um, people like the people who who study this corner of the world. Um, it's not that they subscribe to these ideas, but this is the structure They're that dealing exists. with the repercussions. Yeah, I mean, of, it's of like them. how I was, I presented at the American schools for Oriental research and they even voted to change the name and they didn't. They're like, we like calling it the Orient. And so it's this, it's just these, Ugh. yeah, it's things that aren't great. And so this is something that we may think it's like totally absurd that, Nine like and a half tribes of, of Israelites yeah. got on a boat and cruised over to the Yucatan Peninsula. It's easier than thinking that these are people. Yeah, it's easier than thinking, because if you think that they're human beings, then, my God, what are we doing? But yeah, in we're terms giving of them like, smallpox and moving them off of their land and killing them in massive well, quantities. Yeah, at this point in the 1830s, like this is when they are straight up being displaced. Most people had already been massacred. The ones who they were being. Oh, this was Trail of Tears. And yeah, they were being like actively dispossessed and put in concentration camps and, mm -hmm. and then given small pockets of land to live on as like a screw you to them because it was completely different from the like right it was environment it wasn't space that they that they knew so yeah it's all fun and games 
until somebody is the subject is human. Of, a, of a genocide. <laughs> and so yeah. that is when, the, like, this is how, this is one of the upshots of theories like this. When British colonists first arrived in America, they never saw anyone building mounds. <laughs> and when they asked people what was up with these mounds, they didn't really know. So because it had been generations since or, you know, centuries. Yeah, and like in the in the example of the um, the Cahokia, they're just like everybody left. Mm. Mm. I don't know. It was here when we got here. And they're like, oh, okay. Um, Yeah. Before the British, earlier Europeans, especially the Spanish, uh, they had written numerous non-English language accounts about the Indians' construction of mounds. Uh, we talked about yes, this. but it was in Spanish and they couldn't read that. We, we talked about this in that city. I think we talked about this only in Old News or did we talk about it elsewhere? The city that was found in Kansas where everyone's like, what? It's so huge. And like the, there was a Spanish account being like, yeah, it's here. This big city. And they yep. like went up and they found some people and they're like, yeah, it's over there. Duh. <laughs> and it's like, yeah. this, it's Yeah, huge. this was on old news. Okay. It's a mm-hmm. huge, like yeah, it was thousands of people. Area. Yeah. And um, something, it was discovered in Kansas. because in Kansas, because somebody was studying um, like codices and they're like, that sounds, that sounds awful familiar. And just like went out to a survey and they're like, uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Put huh. two and two together and went, oh, it's a city. Yeah, and which is awesome, but nobody's looking for cities in the middle of Kansas. They should be. In the past, at least. Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, old cities. Yeah, yeah, ancient, yeah. Ancient cities. Yeah. So, yeah, so they didn't, they don't, it's like British, Britishing, like being like, it's not in English. <laughs> no, can't read Just this. say it louder. It's all in foreign. <laughs> Garcilasco de la Vega reported how the Indians built the mounds and placed temples on top of them. A few French expeditions reported staying with Indian societies who built mounds. So. (sighs) Yes, but the English don't speak to the French. They don't like each other. As it usually goes with these things, we've also got some hoaxes. Yep. I'm going to do a, just going to do a four. Four. Hoax roundup. Four little hoaxes. All in a row. First up, we got the Newark Holy Stones. In 1860, David Warwick discovered the Keystone Tablet containing Hebrew language inscriptions written on it in Newark, Ohio. Soon afterward, he found the Newark Decalogue Stone nearby, also claimed to be inscribed in Hebrew. The authenticity of the Newark Holy Stones and circumstances of their discovery are disputed. (laughs) He made them. He carved them in his basement. What a nerd. It was a project. Yeah. Next up, the Davenport tablets. Reverend Jacob Gass discovered <laughs> what was called the Davenport tablets in Iowa in the 1870s. These bore inscriptions that were later determined to be fake. <laughs> Concise and to the point. The Wallam Olam hoax. Wallam Olam. So, it's fun to say. So the Wallam Olam hoax had considerable <laughs> influence on perceptions of the mound builders. That's a bummer. In 1836. Yep. Yeah. That face of delight at that name. Like everyone had three names at this time, but these are three very good names. Constantine Samuel Raffinesque. Very good. 
uh, published his translation of a text he claimed had been written in pictographs on wooden tablets. This text explained that the, is it Lenape or Lenape? I've heard Lenape. I don't know. I thought it was, yeah, I think it's Lenape. Well, forgive us listeners if if you know better, but Lenape. This text explained that the Lenape Indians originated in Asia, told of their passage of the Bering Strait, and narrated their subsequent migration across the North American continent. I mean, to be fair, with what we talked about <laughs> with the, the peopling of the Americas, like, mm-hmm. yeah. maybe not them, but you're not all the way wrong, sir. This Wallam Olam tells of battles with native peoples already in America before the Lenape arrived. People hearing of the account believed that the original people were the mound builders, that the Lenape overthrew them and destroyed their culture. David Osterreicher later asserted that Raffinesque's account was a hoax. He argued that the Wallam Olam glyphs derived from Chinese, Egyptian, and Mayan alphabets. Meanwhile, the belief that the Native Americans destroyed the mound builder culture had gained widespread acceptance. Cool, cool, cool. Great, great. Tight. <laughs> oh, is, is, are you a, a Jaredite? Yeah, yeah, bro. Tight. Another hoax involving the Kinderhook plates, which were discovered in 1843, involved material that had been buried in actual Native American mounds by somebody around then. Um, And this one was very pointed and aimed to discredit the account of the Mormon prophet Joseph Smith having translated an ancient book. Yep. Someone just wanted to be like, uh because of this. Yeah. So, um, this sucks. Yeah. This is a prime example of how carrying through ideas that are fundamentally racist in nature and sort of into what we would now call pseudoscience or pseudoarchaeology is harmful and continues to be yeah. harmful and diminishes the humanity of the real life people who did things on this continent and and who still do things yes on this continent yes and who are still human people yeah even if this is one of those cases where you have descendant you'll have descendant communities who have a cultural or genetic or genetic like lineage to mm. something in antiquity but sometimes you don't even need to have that in order for there to be a link to antiquity so, no. you know, we like the, the populations that built these these mounds may not be related to or claimed by any indigenous groups today. But the theories and the misapplications of theories at the like sur- surrounding these things harm them significantly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um in little ways, like just subtly undermining them, or in big ways, like justifying a genocide. Yeah. But exactly. If we wanna if you want to continue on that that tip, um book club, book club, book club. We need a sting for mm-hmm. our book club. Okay. Book I'll write club, one. Book club, book club. Um I'm just gonna sample you doing that. This <laughs> with, like, book club, with like book a drop club, behind club. it. <laughs> Um, yeah this week um ken fader bet everybody saw that coming (laughs) yeah (laughs) Uh, and his book frauds myths and mysteries science and pseudoscience in archaeology um also he's really follow on twitter he's very entertaining 
yeah. on Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. He's um smart guy, great writer, really funny, cute kid. What's not to love? Yeah. Ugh. Nothing. Okay. Well, that's gonna do it for us this week. And thank you, as always, for listening. And we will be back in your ears soon with new episodes, which you can find everywhere you find your podcasts. I find them under rocks. I find them in the cabinet. <laughs> Up in trees. Oh. You can help us out by leaving reviews and stars at all those places. And we read them and we send screenshots of them to each other. I um, know. Oh, <laughs> they're so uplifting. We love you all. Yes. And your words, your words, you know, the fact that you're actually listening and enjoying to this thing that we, we put out onto the internet is just amazing to us every single time. Yep. We, yep. we love that you like us. Uh, uh. And you can also continue to like us. Uh, Amber's going to keep sending me that GIF. DJ Khaled, every time we get a new like on Facebook, you can find us there. Another one. At, at The Dirt Podcast on Twitter. We're at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we are at The Dirt Pod. And all of that is together on our website, thedirtpod.com. And if you want to email us nice things, you can do that at thedirtpodcast at gmail.com. Yeah, and we put out extra bonus content for our Patreon subscribers. You can get access to bonus goodies like video content and... You can see my overalls. You can see Anna's overalls. You can hear me talk to my dog. What more do you want? For as little as a dollar a month over at patreon.com slash the dirt podcast. But if you want to have, give us a little bit more money, hmm. more impact, something, 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 PayPal... $25 episode? What Amber's trying I, to say... I drafted that for you. <laughs> thank you. What Amber's trying to say is that you can have an episode of your very own. You can choose the topic. And as long as it doesn't conflict with our overall message at the dirt, we will research it and present on it. And you'll have your very own episode to show all of your friends. And you can get that by simply going to the dirtpod.com and clicking on the entry that says, I want an episode. Basically, you PayPal us 25 bucks, we make you an episode. I'm going to PayPal you 25 bucks to make you watch. So we can do an episode on the Cats trailer. You don't have, uh, well, I'll do that for free. <laughs> Just. Okay, well, we got to go so we can do that. Okay, we'll put that up on Facebook. <laughs> Reaction to that. Great. Can't wait. Thanks for listening, everybody. We love you so much. Bye. Goodbye. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Chris Webster here. Thanks for listening and sharing this episode across your socials. It really helps us get the word out. If you don't know how to share from your podcast app, just look for a share icon on Apple devices. It's usually a box with a little arrow coming out of it, something like that, and share it across your socials right from in the app. If you'd like to support us a little more and get some extras in the process, then head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for some options. That's arcpodnet.com slash members to support archaeological education and outreach.